the inspired word has shown us our condition, the unrighteousness of man. I was telling a class downstairs this morning, I recognize it's been a consistent, hard-hitting stream to open this letter. It's been hard, hasn't it, right? But this is what the Word of God says. We certainly don't sidestep verses that are uncomfortable, do we? We preach the whole counsel of God. But I'm with you in it. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. But it's truth. And yet again, one only has to consider humanity, let, our own, let alone our own hearts, to understand, and I think we do all get this, to understand why we all need to first, before we understand anything good and positive and right, we have to first understand our plight truly and rightly. Now, in light of that, in these three chapters, in the opening of the letter, and for those of you that have been tracking with the argument here, I would pray this morning your heart should just be rabid. You should have a rabid heart that is asking something like this. Is this it? Is this just our lot then? Is there any hope in all of this? This is what your heart should be saying. This is difficult, but is this it? And it is my joy this morning, indeed it is, to herald to you and say, this is not all there is. There's Romans 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and so on. But even before that, there's the end of Romans 3. So let's take a look at it. As this, really, as many theologians and church fathers have said, this is indeed the epicenter of the letter right here. What you're about to read, this is the heartbeat of the book of Romans. And I would agree. Let's pick it up in verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Father, as we ask each week, give us eyes to see what you're communicating to us in your word. Let us understand it, receive it, Lord, and live it later and give you glory. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. But now, look at verse 21. But now, one of the great glorious contrasts that we have in God's word, we think of Ephesians 2 and so on and others, great contrast. But now, this is true awfully true, but now. Yes, that is the reality that man has demonstrated, but now this. 
And that contrast is what Paul will present to close this portion of the letter. Set against our unrighteousness is the righteousness of God. And this morning, we're going to see four glorious aspects of the righteousness of God. This is how he closes this chapter. Four aspects of the righteousness of God. And I pray this will indeed be good news for you today. Whatever your lot is this morning, I pray this is received as it's intended as good news. So let's begin. Number one, the manifestation of righteousness. The manifestation of righteousness. Look at verse 21 again. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, look at it, has been manifested apart from the law. What does that mean? Well, remember what the law had manifested to this point. Again, we're keeping everything tight and with us as we march through. To the Jew, the law manifested God's standard, the standard of relationship to be his people, right? It articulated that. It was the measure. It was the expectation. And that was the Mosaic law given to the Jew. But even the moral law, remember, Romans 2, the moral law given to the Gentile demonstrated a sense of law, a sense of right and wrong as well, right? That too law. Again, a standard. Now, to understand what Paul is doing here, we need to consider that firstly. So number one, the law up to this point was given to articulate and outline the standard. We, we see that. That's number one. Two, the law was given with the knowledge of standard along with that, but also for knowledge of sin, right? Later in this letter, Paul says in Romans 7, 7, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. He goes on to say, I wouldn't have known what it means to covet if the law hadn't come along and revealed that to me. Now, let's keep this simple this morning. In those purposes, knowing, stand, knowing the standard, knowing sin, in those purposes to this point, as we come to the New Testament, there's a revealing of the righteousness of God. Do you see that? In that, in just those things, a dimension of it, and which is this simply, who God is, and what this God demands. That's a dimension of the righteousness of God. Who God is and what he demands. That, that is the righteousness of God. Of course, what the law also has revealed or manifested in verse 21, what, the, what it's also manifested, that's saying if we were to use that word, is what? That we cannot keep, we cannot live, we cannot earn the righteousness of God. And again, we looked at this. Remember, case in point is the nation of Israel, is it not? They're the ones that have been given law in a specific form. And how did they do? So in one sense, this has all been manifested. The righteousness of God, remember the underpinning of that, or we would say that the, the truth, the equal truth that lies behind it, is what man cannot do, the unrighteousness of man. And that is revealing in fact, that revealing has been a standard, a knowledge of sin, and an inability. All of that's been manifested through the law. In fact, to say it pointedly, that is the righteousness of God as revealed by way of the law, right? Standard sin, our inability, all of that through the law. But now, Paul says here in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Another way. Now, that does not mean it's a complete surprise. Look at the end of verse 21. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
In other words, the righteousness of God may be manifested now apart from the law, but it is not as if the rest of the Old Testament, law and prophets, is silent. That's the point, right? Here Paul dips back into an idea that he used to actually introduce and open this letter. You can look at chapter 1. Look at the opening verses in chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And look at this in verse 2. With this gospel of God which he promised beforehand, where? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Old Testament bore witness, we looked at this, to this good news of God. The Old Testament bore witness to it. Lots of prophecy. Recall, prophecy of one coming, an anointed one, Messiah, to fulfill a seed that would deliver, one whose work would be righteous. That's what the Old Testament declared. Consider prophecies such as Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, prophecy, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Prophecy, or we would say righteousness, first to Israel as many of the prophets foretold, but also righteousness that extended, we learn later, to those grafted in as God's people, to the joint heirs. Righteousness is described in Isaiah 53, 11. Listen, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's Old Testament. That's the righteousness of God that's in view in the prophets. Witnessed, Apart from the law, so churches, saints of this administration, by way of that, as the church designed to make the Jew jealous, Romans 11, we recognize with illuminated eyes and regenerated hearts who Isaiah 53, who that righteous one in Isaiah 53 is, and who that righteous one, similar prophecies bearing witness to God's righteousness are pointing to. We know that. God, by way of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes. Yet, as we consider the Old Testament, that was merely a hint, merely a preview, far from righteousness fully revealed. That was then in the Old Testament, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law and alongside, here it is, the witness of the law and prophets. The righteousness of God has been manifested in another way and in a fuller way. And how? Well, Paul gives it in verse 22. Look at it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. Now, Paul is introducing something here that he's going to unpack a few verses later. But now, how is the righteousness of God manifested? Just simply look at it. Let the text just do what it does. Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how it's manifested. Through faith in Jesus Christ. The Messiah promised then... Now fully named, right? That anointed one, Messiah, now named, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is now manifested through him, specifically through faith in him. That's it. Again, we'll come back to faith and believing, as Paul does in a moment. For now, he turns to focus on this man of righteousness. That's our next point. He's going to turn and focus on this man of righteousness. Paul continues at the end of verse 22. Look at it. For there is no distinction. Now, language like this, if you've been tracking with us in Romans, you should just know exactly what's coming next, right? If you've been here for these first three chapters, when you see that for there is no distinction, you would say, yes, I know what's coming. 
We know what there is no distinction means. You would know that there is no Jew advantaged or Greek excluded. No distinction in what? Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at it. For all have sinned. You say, what does that mean? It means all have sinned. All have sinned. And truly, it pains me to say that because people want to battle with a verse like this. Well, maybe not all. All have sinned. All have sinned. Jew, Greek, you, me, all of us, humanity have sinned. There's no escaping. I remember Romans 3, 9. All are under sin. And thus, as a sinful humanity, we have fallen short of the glory of God. That means man was created in whose image? God's. Genesis 1, 27. We were created in the image of God. And it means, as the events subsequent to creation demonstrate, mankind falls short of that image. Mankind was created in God's image, but mankind certainly doesn't live God's image. A sinful mankind falls short thus of the glory of God. Now, all men fall short, but there is, of course, one man that does not. We've named him already, as the text have, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. The one man that is the exact imprint of God's nature, Hebrews 1.3. And it is by this man, and only by this man, this man of righteousness, that image return is found. There is no other way to restore yourself to the glory of God's image. Only through the man of righteousness. Let's read all of verse 23 and 24 to get the sense here. This is important. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, look at this. All fall short one way, sin. And all are redeemed one way, Christ. Do you see that? All fall short one way, sin. All are redeemed one way, Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that all are redeemed, right? We're responsible Bible readers, and we recognize the rest of the counsel of God that makes clear that not all will have faith and be redeemed and believe. But it means that all fall short the same way sin, and all are redeemed the same way Christ. That's the point of 23 and 24. It means if man or woman is to be redeemed, and this is key, if they're to be redeemed, if, then Jesus is the only way. There's no other way. There's justification nowhere else. Paul will proceed in the next few verses to outline exactly how Jesus did that. However, before we move too quickly here to our next point, we need to note a few things. Number one, this man of righteousness, let's look at this, provides for us justification. You see that word there in 24, justified. You hear the term justification. What is that? Well, justification most simply is the way in which we are made right in God's sight. And as that word would suggest, how are we justified in God's sight? That's what justification is. It is a declaration. This is key. It's a declaration. It's not a process. This is legal. This is an announcement on one, right? This is our position before God. What is then, beloved, your declared position before God? What is it? That's justification. The text says that Jesus, the man of righteousness, does something, does something 
with our position before God. In chapter 4 and in the new year, God willing, Romans will have much more to say on that. We're going to see the example of this in Abraham, but more on that then. So that's one, justification. Two, this justification is by his grace as a gift. Westmount, do you see that? It's a gift. It's a gift. That means this position, this being made right before God, is a gift. It's not of you. Logically, as it is true of all gifts, you do not earn it. You instead, what? Simply receive it, right? This gift, then, is about what God gives. Listen to me, friend. It's not about what you accomplish. It's about what God gives. And you receive. The same way at Christmas, gifts, many gifts, are given undeservedly. So to the gift of justification by grace alone. Listen, we did nothing, we add nothing. Christ alone. Thirdly, this gift is through, look at verse 24, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption. Redemption is a word from the marketplace. That's the sense behind that word. It speaks to purchase. We know this word, right? In commerce. This is what's going on with redemption. There's a sense of purchase, but even more specifically here, a sense of purchasing back, buying back. In fact, if we were getting really precise this morning, which you always want to be, this is like a rescue ransom. This is a buy back that is a rescue to bring back by way of purchase, if you will. That's what redemption is. We sinned and fall short, but in Christ alone there is redemption. There's return to God. There's ransom and rescue in Christ. Now, how Christ does that, Paul covers next. For now, we simply digest this truth of the man of righteousness. And in him is the righteousness of God. Next is the manner of righteousness. The manner of righteousness. Here we arrive at the work of Christ. This is the how of Christ. What did he do? Now, what we need to see here and look for it in verse 25 is where God's word will tell us that this work of Christ was put forward, look at it, to show God's righteousness. That's important. This work of Christ was put forward in a way to show God's righteousness. That's key. Let's read these next two verses, 25. Whom God, this is Christ Jesus still in view, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's just walk through this. This is such a loaded section of God's word. We need to take our time and just pull it apart piece by piece. So vital. Look at verse 25. First, whom God put forward, the whom, again, Christ, from verse 24. Here it is. So God put Christ forward as a propitiation. Stop there. Propitiation is a word that describes a concept The word may sound foreign this morning, but it actually describes a concept that's all over the Bible and especially the Old Testament. Plainly, the idea here is appeasing or placating the wrath of God. 
The Greek word here is the same one that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe that place above the ark, the mercy seat. Do you remember we looked at this in Exodus? That placement above the ark of the covenant where perfect blood was called for and sprinkled. This is what God called for by way of an appeasement, right, to his wrath and the ongoing sin of Israel. In shadow then, and recognizing like we did in Exodus, that blood was called for, but it was not effectual, meaning it was called for as a symbol, right? And God in his forbearance, right, accepted that, knowing what was coming. But that blood did not atone truly. It was not effectual blood, and we learned this in Exodus. In shadow, then, as we learned there, this is the prefigured idea. This word refers to the place where blood is offered to atone for sin. All right, and again, this is all over Scripture. Bill took us to one, the Lord's table in 1 John. This is a concept all over Scripture. And I think you're connecting the dots here. I hope you are, from the old to the new. A place where blood is shed to atone for sin. The sacrificed blood of bulls and goats was the system under the Mosaic law. However, as Hebrews 10.4 tells us, it was actually impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the New Testament comes along and says, now those sacrifices given under the law remember a manifestation of the righteousness of God. Why? And well, they showed this, and this is simply it. This is why. That the shedding of blood is necessary for true atonement and true forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22. That, that's what the Levitical system was designed to show. The blood is necessary. You sin blood. You sin blood. That's the point. As such, the sacrifice put forward here, as we come to the New Testament, Romans 3, was not an animal from Leviticus. But the sacrifice put forward, the text says, for our redemption as a gift was a son, a human being, fully human, from God, who was fully God. A son whose spotless human divine blood was put forward as a sacrifice. That's what's going on here. And look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So there, there it is, by his blood he's put forward to be received by faith. But more, look at this, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And this is the manner of righteousness in the gospel of God. Again, we just consider more pieces here. Recall Romans 1, that we are helpless creatures with the wrath of God remaining on us. That wrath we face here, suppressing the truth, and that wrath awaits us there in the end. Yet here God put forward his son as a propitiation, again an appeasement of his wrath. How? By his blood. Now let's just put these two together and make sure we're clear on this in our minds. The shed blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ is what quells the anger of God. That is the only manner for mankind's righteousness and salvation before God. Do you see that? The righteousness of God in the blood of Christ. And as such, it's only received, verse 25, one way. Look at this. This is the manner to be received by how? Faith alone. Faith alone. There's no other way to be justified, redeemed, and out from under God's wrath. 
Listen, in former times, prior to the advent of Messiah, with former sins, you say, what about all those sins of the Old Testament saints? God passed over them. Now, what that doesn't mean is that they didn't warrant a penalty. It was a deferred penalty. He passed over them. He could have called it in, and he did at times in the Old Testament, right? Called in that judgment right away, but he didn't. In his forbearance, he passed over them knowing what was coming. Thus, Adam's sin, Abraham's sins, Moses' sins, David's sins, and so on, all warranting death, all coming with the same price as you and I. But what this means is that God in his divine forbearance, meaning his godly character of perfect patience, 1 Timothy 1.16, held off and held back. He waited. God waited to pour out his wrath for former sins, knowing his son was coming who would bear that wrath at an appointed time for all time to do and show this, verse 26, to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ's first advent, what we're going to celebrate in one week from today, the sacrificial death that ended that first advent and was the hallmark of it, that putting forward of his son, God did, let's see this, to show his righteousness now. That's why Christ came and was put forward, to demonstrate his righteousness now. So that, again, verse 26, God is both just, means objectively recognizing sin must be dealt with, and the justifier, actively authoring a plan and then bringing forth the son to fulfill it. That's how he's just and the justifier. It's all God, alone, in every manner of righteousness. One more here. It's found in the final few verses of the chapter. Let's look at it. It's the means of righteousness. The means of righteousness. Fittingly, Paul brings this section to a close with some final questions. It almost seems fitting, right? It's been a motif that Paul has used. The, as the ancients would call the diatribe. He's used that mechanism. And let's read as we're going to see some more here in verses 27 to 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And here's more questions. 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And one more. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? And then the strong negation we've seen before. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's look at this. Then what becomes of our boasting? You remember the Jewish boast in chapter 2, verse 17? Well, what about that? The national ethnic boast that relied on law, taught law, clung to the badge of the law, circumcision. What of that? Well, here Paul says, if it wasn't gathered already, that boasting is excluded. Naturally. Recall, possessing law does not justify one before the law. Remember, it's not just because one knows law and was given law and possesses law that makes one right. Well, by what kind of law then? If holding the law, this and you can sense the argument of being a possessor of the law, if that's an advantage, well, by what kind of law then? A law of works? Of course not. Points already been proved, but Paul says, verse 27, now this is key, how by the law of faith? You might say the law of faith. 
That sounds like a contradiction. Some may say, those, aren't those two things like opposites? Hardly. Now let's not fade away here at this crucial time of bringing it all together, not just this morning, but in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Let's zero in. Law in principle is what? What is law in principle? It is a standard, and even more, it's what? A consistent standard, right? That's why we have law, for consistency of standard. And what is said here is to balance those that want to throw out law altogether. Do you, do you see how the argument would go? Well, I'm just done with law then. I think I got you, Paul. Let's just throw it out. We're not justified by works. Yes, I'm digging that. Let's just forget law. And you know, sadly, that is precisely what people do right up to today. They go, no law, antinomian. They say, we're just creatures of grace. They're against law. We don't need it anymore. This has plagued the church, and particularly since the time of the Reformation. In fact, Luther was told, this is what's going to happen. If you do this, Luther, you recognize you're going to have a bunch of people running around, lawless people. And of course, Luther's famous response was, the gospel recovery is worth it. We'll deal with that. We'll teach them the Bible and those things. But Because that's a wrong understanding of law and grace is what it is. It's not a matter of throwing law out the window. That thinking, in fact, to say that all of a sudden Christ came and we can throw out the law actually betrays the very God's law that declares it. Just because law, listen, is not rooted in works but faith does not mean it's any less law. Does that make sense? Just because law is not talking about works but it's talking about faith doesn't mean it's any less law. The coach that gathers the team together and says, here's the recipe for winning this season. And the guy at the back says, wait a minute, coach. We're not cooking here, right? What are you giving us a recipe for? And he says, no, I'm going to give you a recipe with ingredients. It's called hard work. Play hard, stick together. And you can imagine the guy in the back, wait a minute. Well, that's no recipe. I don't accept that because it doesn't have food ingredients. Just because a recipe doesn't have food ingredients doesn't mean it's not a recipe. In the same way, just because law doesn't have works doesn't mean it's not a law. I hope that makes sense. The standard for winning for the coach is the same for all. That's his point. Here's the recipe. Here's the standard for winning. Practice. Play hard always. In the same way, the law of faith declares this is the standard. To be made right in God's sight is exactly the same. It's the same standard for all mankind. And it's stated crystal clearly in verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith. We would say alone, apart from works of the law. There it is. We're justified by faith alone, not by works. There is no other way. That's the law of faith. The only standard of righteousness for all mankind. That's it. That's the law of faith. And for any Roman, any reader, any Jew, any Greek, any human missing this point, Paul declares, again clearly one more time, look at verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? In other words, when you think of law, think of Jews. Is this just a Jew thing? No. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of course he is. Since God is one. In other words, he created all, Jew and Gentile. And he will justify the circumcised by faith, so the ones under the Mosaic law, 
they will be justified not by works of the law, but by faith. And the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, they also through faith. You see that? That's the standard. That's the law of faith. There's one standard of righteousness before God, and it is faith. Faith. God is one. Same God of the Jews, same God of the Gentiles. One nation may be circumcised, and that was a law work and administration, and the other nations may not be. That's true, but that old covenant distinction does not define the parameters for righteousness. In fact, it never has. Gabe read for us about Abraham this morning. Well before, well before God was instituting the Mosaic law, and certainly before circumcision, and yet his faith was counted to him as what? Righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. And there were countless circumcised law-keeping Jews that were not righteous, and listen, they perished. Jesus confronted many of those, by the way. Many law-keepers with the badge of, of law and so on, but they were perishing. Like Paul was under the law, in Philippians 3, 6, when he presented his blamelessness, he also said, basically, I'm, I was hell-bound. Save Christ. It's because the means of righteousness is not that kind of law. It's not the works of the law. No one is justified in God's sight through that. No, instead, the standard for all mankind is the law of faith. Now, of course, we do need to mention, so we keep concert with all we've studied, Christ fulfilled works of the law because he could and because it was demanded. It's we that are not justified by works of the law. Well, I know we get that, but it does need to be repeated. It's the means of righteousness for us, for us, is faith, given by God to respond to God. And that is right. We do not even have the faith in and of ourselves, beloved. Listen, God must give us faith. I beg any of you thinking, well, yeah, I'm going to reason my way. I'm going to think this through. This is kind of being logical, natural. No, whatever you Our thinking about God must be given by God. That's why justification, redemption, salvation is all by God and Christ alone. Now, one last remark in the chapter here, a final protest, so fitting for this section. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul returns again, he's used this two other times, now a third in this section, by no means, strong negation. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul basically rebukes that thinking. One last pendulum ride, though, for the reader. The protester says, well, let's just overthrow law then. This is what's been simmering under the surface, right? This is just flesh manifest. Let's just overthrow it. It's useless, the protester says, if it doesn't justify anyone. Again, this is ripe antinomian fuel here. It's just useless. That's why, by the way, antinomians are so short-sighted. And you'll hear them say all kinds of things. We don't need the Old Testament. Now, while we're at it, we don't really need Paul. In fact, what we really need is the mercy and forgiveness passages of Jesus. Uh, And maybe 1 Corinthians 13. Though, that's it. That's all we need. That's living for Jesus. To throw out the law is to throw out the Bible. No, as Paul says here, the law, look at it. The law is upheld by faith. Yes, the law sustains and endures by faith. Mark it. Listen, the law of God, whether seen through Moses in the Old Testament or Christ in the New, is the unchanging standard of righteousness that God demands of all mankind. Let me say that again. 
The law of God, whether seen through Moses or Christ, is the unchanging standard of righteousness that God demands of all mankind. It's unchanging. And listen, in light of this, you say, how does this, how do we not throw out the law? How does faith uphold the law? Think with me. What would unbelief do to the law? In fact, what do some antinomians show us? Unbelief kills the law, doesn't it? Unbelief kills the law. Unbelief says, I can't do that, thus I won't do that. That's, that's what a no-law position says, so what does it do? It just wants to kill the law. It wants to render it mute. Listen to me, beloved. That's what unbelief, if left unchecked, would do to law. And in fact, you see that all over the place. Unbelief would kill the law, if it could. But thank God that unbelief is checked and instead belief is given faith. Belief is given, faith is given. Faith given by God to live for God by way of saying, this is, what, this is how the law is upheld. Yes, I see the law. I see God's righteous standard. Faith says, I recognize thus that I've fallen short of that standard. That's what faith does. I see the standard and I see that I've fallen short of God's glory. Faith says, I see also that I'm in trouble against that standard. And far from saying I can't and I won't, faith says, how? How can I be made right? Faith, like a young child, cries out to creator. Faith that says, it is impossible with me to be made right with God, for me to be made right with God. But there must be a way. There must be a way. And that brings us full circle to the young man. Do you remember? We come all the way back to him. Do you remember? And here's the point. That young man did what? He sought to uphold the law by his works. In fact, as it would turn out, by his unbelief. And in fact, it was his lack of belief that in the end betrayed him, that caused him to walk away from Jesus. It's his unbelief that in his perspective killed the law. And imagine the scene. All those law works in a big sack he placed before Jesus and said, look what I've done. And unbelief caused him to what? Walk away from it all. Unbelief kills the law. Faith upholds it. But we return to this account and the looming question. That's unbelief. That's law work, seeking justification by your own hands. One imagines the disciples looking on at this encounter in the first century, turning to each other, whispering, what, did you just see that? What, what, if, he's, if that rich young guy is not going to the kingdom, who's going? Look at all the things he's done. Well, who's going to get to the kingdom? This is impossible if he's not going. Who can be? Christ, knowing all men's hearts, and certainly that question, says this. Let's pick up the account. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Jesus said, what is impossible with man is what? Possible with God. Possible with God. The righteousness of God in the gospel of God is this. Against mankind's unrighteousness and due penalty, God's wrath, God sent his son in flesh to do what was, listen, impossible for man. Impossible for mere men and women to do. And it's this, 
offer a perfectly lived life in exchange for eternal life, you and I. That is the righteousness of God. Given freely, listen, to the repentant sinner. Not to everyone indiscriminately. The righteousness of God is dispensed by way of faith to the repentant sinner. As God desires. Wrath exchanged for grace. It's an unthinkable transaction, isn't it? Wrath exchanged for grace by way of faith in Jesus Christ. So much more ahead. Again, God willing, in the new year as we turn to Romans 4. Bow with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for these rich texts of Scripture. We thank you for the teaching that it does give to our soul. Lord, may we respond rightly to it. May we indeed be, by your sovereign hand, creatures of faith. Oh God, help us to do that now in response as we sing and as we go out and live. And look, Lord, to be strengthened in your truth and again by your grace and mercy. Amen.